Those four are, simply put, if I trust you, I will follow you. If I believe you're competent, I will follow you. If you inspire me, I will follow you. And if I believe you're forward-looking, I will follow you. And I also want to define followership. It's not compliance or I obey the boss because the boss is the boss. Followership is about giving heart, soul, mind, and body to the cause. That every day there is something greater that the individual is contributing to. And it's generally driven by these attributes coming from the leader. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, the host of Conversations and a coach at Quantivos. And with me is David Keating, another Quantivos coach. Welcome, David. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. David, before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are? Um, thanks. I, I think the quickest and easiest way to describe who I am is that I'm a business person. I've been in corporate America for probably 35 years now, 35 plus and about five years ago, I had an epiphany that my real passion was to coach and develop people. And so from there, I started a plan to transition out of corporate America. I went to Georgetown University, got coaching certification, got certification with the International Coaching Federation. And then ultimately, a couple of years ago, separated from my last corporate gig and hung out a shingle and became an executive coach. David, the topic of our conversation today is the real reason people follow leaders. What attracted you to focus on this topic? I love this topic because after three and a half decades of leadership fads, I got exposed to the work of these two individuals, Kuz and Posner, and found that they were approaching the whole topic of leadership fundamentally differently than anything that I had seen in the prior three decades. And when that happened, it awakened my mind that there is probably a a pow more powerful way to look at this issue of leadership. Like you can Google the word leadership and you will get more than 5 billion responses. So why amongst the 5 billion is the work of these guys different? And that's what struck me, that they had several fundamental differences and that they gave the, the best explanation for why people follow a leader versus anything else that I had seen in the past. Is there a short answer to that question? Actually, there is. That's the beauty of their work. It is both sublime and it is simple. And what they did was they did not look at successful leaders and put them under a microscope. Instead, they went out and they interviewed over 100,000 people around the globe. And they asked one question, why do you follow? And from that, they found four basic themes that boil down to core human behavior. The reason I posit that they found core human behavior is that regardless of whether or not you were born 
in Singapore, Moscow, Sao Paulo, New York, same four reasons that people follow a leader. The only difference between socialist societies and capitalist societies is the, is the, the ordering of the four. So those four are, simply put, if I trust you, I will follow you. If I believe you're competent, I will follow you. If you inspire me, I will follow you. And if I believe you're forward-looking, I will follow you. And I also want to define followership. It's not compliance or I obey the boss because the boss is the boss. Followership is about giving heart, soul, mind, and body to the cause. That every day there is something greater that the individual is contributing to. And it's generally driven by these attributes coming from the leader. One of the things that really impresses me is that this is about true leadership. This isn't about being in a leadership position where I'm following you because of your authority over me, your control over my paycheck or my bonus or what assignments I get or anything else. This is really about true leadership. And you can't be a true leader if you have no followers. And you can be a true leader at any level, in any position in the organization. Without a doubt. What I also like about their work is that they translate what appear to be very obvious answers into specific management leadership behaviors. And so they focus on the behavior. They do not focus on what the leader happens to be feeling. So for example, if we take the third pillar, which is inspiration, many of my clients will come to me and say, I, I can't be an inspirational I don't feel inspirational. I'm not a cheerleader. I don't do these kinds of things. I don't even like to talk in public. But what these two guys found was that inspiration really has to do with creating opportunity for people on your team or around you if you don't have direct reports, allowing the other person to be the hero of the story, providing resources for them along the way, and then celebrating the heck out of their success when it happens. That is what actually inspires people in the business world. One of the things that I really like about this conversation and the framework that you're putting on it is I'm familiar with their work. I don't know it the way you know it, and yet I can align how I coach and work with my clients right with what you're talking about. So one of the founding questions for my work with clients is, what makes your heart sing? What are you passionate about? What gets you up and excited about coming to work in the morning? And then, as a leader, I'm going to ask you the same question about the people who work for you. And most leaders can answer the question for themselves, but knowing, you know, if, if you worked for me, David, knowing what you get excited about, what you want to come to work for, I can align your responsibilities with your passion and that inspires you it's very interesting a while back i was working with a client and and asked him this this question and and then asked him the same question about his employees and he said i guess i'll go have to go find out and he came back into the next coaching session he said i almost lost my best employee because the day before our last coaching session i assigned that person a customer relationship responsibility for our function. And then I went and asked the question and they said, I hate working with people. Put me in a closet with spreadsheets and I'll be happy all day. So knowing what inspires the people who work for you is such a key part of being a successful leader. How about some of the other pillars here? 
Yes. So that's pillar number three. And I'm, and I'm going in order of the priority in the Western portion of the world. In the Eastern portion of the world, inspiration tends to be number one. So in the Western part of the world, trust is number one. And the first piece of this is that people go, well, I'm an honest person. Well, of course, folks trust me at the office. But what these two gentlemen have done was they've, they've broken down the actual behaviors that invoke trust. So it's not about whether or not Brian is an honest guy. Brian could be a very honest guy, but not be able to engender the feeling of trust. So simple examples. We say people are our most important resource. But what is the one meeting we push off every week? Our one-on-one checkpoint. Or we say that our people are super important and we want to have competitive compensation. And then at the end of the year, we de-emphasize the performance review cycle or we grind it down into a series of numbers and developmental conversations aren't part of it. And so a person feels like you said I was important, but your actions don't convey that I am. Another key area where we have old school, new school. Old school was if there was a mistake on the team, team leader gets everybody together and starts hammering people publicly. Why? Because we believe that public shame was the best way to prevent errors in the future. But instinctively, we know that no one else in the room, even if they weren't the target of his or her wrath, is not going to trust that leader, will not come forward and tell them when things are wrong, will hide information, and will just be really glad when the meeting is over. And so trust has broken down. So yes, if we're afraid of the manager, we will comply, but we will not follow. And that's the distinction that they draw. So there's a series of behaviors underneath trust. Trust and distrust are actually located in in different parts of the brain. Trust is located in the prefrontal cortex, which is where we do our reason thinking. Our creativity resides there, our problem solving. Distrust is associated with the reptilian brain, the, the site of fight, flight, freeze, appease. And so it's evident if we want to get the best out of our people, we need to build trusting relationships. And just very quickly, David, I use Judith Glasser's neuroscience-based model of trust, which is transparency, including the piece that many people miss, being transparent about what I need from you. Mm. So the acronym is T-R-U-S-T, Transparency Relationship, Seeing the World Through the Other's Eyes. If I was that person being chewed out in front of the rest of the team, how would I feel? Understanding, that deep understanding that comes from listening deeply, listening to what's not being said, listening in the context in which things are being said. Shared success, not just agreeing on the words that we attribute to success, but agreeing on their meaning and telling the tough truths with candor and caring. Absolutely spot on. And what I find with clients is that there are actually like 10 subcategories of trust building or not building behaviors. And we spend a lot of time running through a leadership audit and you'll have really well-meaning people who stop and go, oh my gosh, you're right. No wonder my team is not telling me X, Y, and Z. It's not that they were mean or intended to be a mistrustful person, but they were acting out of an old leadership model and that engendered that 
that fear, as you say, in the reptilian brain. The question to ask is, what can I do to strengthen your trust in me? If there's some level of distrust between us, I own part of that. So what can I do to strengthen mm-hmm. your trust in me? Not why don't you trust me? <laughs> because that puts the responsibility back on you. Yeah. And very few team leaders are going to tell their manager why that person is not trustworthy. And the few who try, and then there's a defensive reaction or a dismissive reaction, that is the last time that team member will ever attempt that. And it will certainly solidify that the leader can't be trusted and therefore will not be followed. So that's kind of like the trust pillar. And that's a very, very big one, particularly for the Western part of the world. The second one is competency. And what happens is leaders will say, well, I'm a good engineer. I'm a good attorney. I'm a good business person. I'm a good finance person. Like, of course, I'm competent. But everyone expects that to be table stakes. It's competency around what I like to call people management 101. This is distinct from leadership. This is just the blocking and tackling of managing other human activity. So if we think about people management competency, for example, how do I allocate resources? Do I give the best projects to the person on my team who, quote, looks like the right fit, but it could look like favoritism to the team? When there's performance problems, someone on the team Do I ignore those performance problems? Do I address them? How do I address them? If I say to the team that I believe development is super important, and yet Jane and Monica and Raj get my development attention time and Steve and Bill don't, then again, there is just a fundamental lack of awareness that the leader is watched by the team 24-7. It just happens to be our favorite spectator sport. So the leader thinks, oh, Well, no one really is noticing that I'm spending some extra time or I'm getting a beer with John or something like that, but the rest of the team notices it. And so the people management competency has really to do with fairness. And you could argue that that is a subset of trust, and there is some overlap there, but it really does have to do with core expectations for what a manager of people needs to do, allocate resources, deal with performance, and create time available on his or her calendar for the benefit of others? And does that appear as if that's being done in a competent and fair way? So that's kind of the competency pillar. David, I have a question on this one. One of the things that is very important from my perspective around leadership is what's most often referred to as vertical development. And for our listeners who are not familiar with that term, Typically, when we talk about leadership development, we're talking about skills. We're talking about, am I good at budgeting? Am I good at giving performance reviews? Am I good at delegating work and and those kinds of things? If we think of that as horizontal development, vertical development is maturity as a leader. And I'm not going to give the whole model, but there are several levels of leadership maturity The first is very much an I-centric leader. You know, I tell you what to do, I take all the credit, et cetera, et cetera. At the most mature level, we have people like Mahatma Gandhi, who was clearly a leader, and yet it was about a, a very broad, encompassing kind of leadership. Does vertical development come into play in, in this area of competency? Great question. If I think purely in the practical business realm of what I've observed 
and what I think the work of Kuzin Posner would tell us is that there is likely a minimum level of vertical development necessary to be an effective business leader. And I would probably put that in, in and I know there's many different definitions for the layers, but roughly in the self-determined level. It's still conventional level thinking. It's not on the level of Gandhi or post-conventional thinkers, but it is the ability to see yourself as just part of the fabric and not necessarily as the lead thread in the fabric. It shows a desire for feedback and, and understanding and learning and lifting others up and so forth. And so that stage of vertical development naturally fits well with Am I trustworthy? Am I competent from a people management standpoint? Am I inspirational? All of those are going to be others focused elements of that vertical development. The last one we haven't talked about yet is the idea of forward looking. And I don't know, I, I think you can still be on the lower rungs of vertical development and be a forward looking person because it's more of a technical skill. However, if you're really good at forward looking and you fail on the other three pillars, it's really unlikely that someone is going to wholeheartedly follow you. They might say, hey, this person's a really good strategist, but that does not mean that they will trust you and follow you into the unknown. So if we think about both sides of the globe, both sides put forward looking as the bottom driver. It's essential. And I think it goes back to what happens in our reptilian brain. Nonetheless, it's a part of the pillars. But if that's the only pillar you've got, I don't think anybody follows you. And that's just my personal hypothesis. Can you tell us more about forward looking? Because one of the things that really shocks me today in this, and I'm not sure if we are truly in post-pandemic, but in this day and age of high levels of business disruption is how many leaders are responding to the freeing up, if you will, of COVID-based restrictions with what I don't think is forward-looking leadership, which is you must come back to the office. Well, we literally hear leaders of some of this country's largest organizations saying things like work from home is an aberration. People don't hustle when they work from home. Uh, I don't care if people don't like to commute. I want to see them here to know that they're working as if we're working because we're in the office. So what is true looking forward in the eyes of this model? Yes, there are a lot of missed opportunities post pandemic. Those, I think, fall in people management competency misses as opposed to forward-looking misses. Now, you could say, you know, what is the future of work? And that's fine. That is a very forward-looking category. But one of the fundamentals of people management is that people own what they create. So if they have a say in how they work, where they work, when they work, and so forth, you will gain tremendous productivity from that. Nonetheless, there is an element of forward-looking. So pure forward-looking is business strategy. Where is the market moving? Where is consumer demand moving? Where is supply chain moving? What are the things that will wipe out our business? That's sort of in the realm of that C minus one, the C-suite level and so forth. And a lot of leaders don't really get access to that. But any given leader of a team can be very effective in forward looking if they sit down with their team and they say, hey, guys, let's look at the next 90 days. What have we got? We've got the holidays coming up. We've got year-end close coming up. we got year-end quotas. Where are all of the constraints? How do we want to interact with each other? What are the goals we want to accomplish together over the next next 90 days? And how do we make sure we all 
have very happy holidays. And like nobody is caught here on the eve of their favorite holiday having to be at the office because we did not plan ahead. So even if a leader doesn't have the ability to be the strategist for the company, they do have the ability to help people think about the future of what's going to impact them most directly. And leaders that do this get a very strong response. I have a number of clients that are in the manufacturing business. And right now the manufacturing paper making businesses are taking terrible hits. Lines are being idled. There's risks of layoffs. There's things of that nature. And those leaders have gotten their teams together and they've said, guys, it's going to be rough for the next 90 days. What do we do together? What are we going to agree to get through that? And what that does is it gives a sense of assurance to the team that the boss is looking out for them. And so that's what I like to call micro forward looking. Any manager has the opportunity to do that. Macro forward looking is largely in business strategy and this is where, in the macro picture, this is where the idea of the future of work comes in. Is it a chicken or an egg? Well, if boss says you got to come into the office and I need that job, then I guess I will come into the office. But will I follow that leader? No, because that leader has taken control away from me over my future. So you get compliance when you get edicts but you do not get followership. So it's kind of a question of what that leader wants. But in the simplest form, any leader at any level can score high points on the forward-looking pillar by involving their team and planning over the next 90 days, particularly how work is going to impact them personally. That's where you can score a lot of points. And I think this might tap into our reptilian brain around threat detection. So if the CEO is always looking for the thing that could put us out of business, then there's someone watching the shop. Or if my boss is thinking about my well-being over the next 90 days, boss is watching the shop. And that allows me to be a little less afraid. And if I'm a little less afraid, I've got a little more energy and I'm willing to devote that and give that back to the mission because I know so somebody's watching the store. So while we all have to watch the store, you can take a little bit of a mental break if you need to. It's just a hypothesis. I'm not quite sure exactly why the fourth pillar is forward-looking, but it does appear to show up in the empirical data. I think you're probably right that it is associated with our natural defense mechanisms. If we're not looking forward, then we're at risk because mm -hmm. whatever is out there can change. David, I've really enjoyed this conversation. At the beginning, you talked about there being the same four in Eastern and Western countries and in different order. So could you just briefly walk through the order for each of those again? Sure. So in basically capitalist or semi-capitalist societies, trust is first, competency is second, inspiration is third, forward-looking is fourth. If you're in more of a socialist, communist, more restricted, planned government type environment, inspiration is number one, then competency, then trust, and forward-looking is fourth. So regardless of which hemisphere you are roughly on the, in the globe, two and four remain the same. Only one and three switch. Very interesting. You can have every, everyone's probably got a theory as to why that might be. My favorite is that we prefer someone we can trust versus someone who inspires us. Other parts of the world are like, well, maybe I can't count on trust, but if they inspire me and I feel good about where I am, then okay, I'm willing to go along. But I don't know, just a theory. David, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>